Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. They are better than most companies at observing customer behavior. And instead of just assuming what customers do or want to do, they actually see what people are doing. But their focus is on two things, friction and personalization. And a lot of it is using uh, advanced technology to do that. Well, there are stats that will tell you that if you want to increase customer loyalty, a great time to increase customer loyalty is when something goes wrong. So today, I'm really pleased to welcome on the podcast, uh, Roger Dooley. Roger is the author of Brainfluence and a new book out called Friction. He's an international speaker and does a really good blog. Uh, if you haven't read it, I would suggest that you do. One of the leading lights in uh, neuromarketing, uh, writes a lot on Forbes as well. So welcome, Roger. Well, thanks for having me on, Colin. Happy to be here. We've obviously known each other for some time. And when you told us that you got this new book out, I thought, yeah, definitely need to get you on and talk about it. So can you maybe start off by giving us a bit of an overview of what's the book about? You know, why do you write it? Why do you think it's important at this moment? Well, Colin, it really relates directly to your key topic of customer experience. But the book is sort of a, a grand unified theory of friction because I bring in the whole customer experience aspect of it and how companies, both large and small, have disrupted industries simply by making things easier for their customers. Uh, Amazon being probably the best example, the prime example, if you will, because back as far as 1997, Jeff Bezos was talking about frictionless shopping. This is when most companies weren't even talking about e-commerce yet or were just getting their heads around that. And he saw the potential. The year after that, they patented one-click ordering because, again, they wanted to not only offer their customers this minimum friction process for ordering, but also they wanted to prevent the competition from doing it. And most people did not think they'd be able to defend that patent. Barnes & Noble didn't and got embroiled in a big lawsuit, which Amazon won. Barnes & Noble had to add a second click to their checkout process. Apple, meanwhile, and Steve Jobs, who understand a little bit about customer experience, saw what the advantage was of this process as they were launching their new music store and just licensed it. They didn't fight it. They just said, we need that, we want it, and we'll pay for it. And the whole history of Amazon is eliminating friction. Even in packaging, probably 10 or a little more years ago, they saw that customers were often struggling with retail packaging because they were basically getting the same packages that you would find on a shelf in a Walmart or other retail store. And these things are these attractive, uh, often plastic blister packs or heat-sealed uh, packages yeah, yeah. that are very difficult to open without tools. Uh, and that's good. And ripping your hands oh, the bit yeah, as you're well, doing exactly. it. Yeah, you can stab yourself and with And sometimes slicing and, through whatever's inside the package. Yeah, it's <laughs> right. And they are better than most companies at observing customer behavior. And instead of just assuming what customers do or want to do, they actually see what people are doing and watching people struggle with this stuff they said well you know we don't need that kind of packaging we don't have to worry about people shoplifting 
And we don't have to worry about people seeing a good view of the product as they're perusing it in the store. So they went to this frustration-free packaging, just nice little plain cardboard boxes with all the stuff neatly organized in there, better for the environment than these non-degradable plastic things and far easier for the customers to open. And what they found was not only was this bonus, was it easier for the customers to open and so on, which they liked, but the negative comments about products went down something like uh, 70 or 80 percent of those products that were packaged that way. So by changing the opening experience, they actually changed people's perception of the product itself. So Amazon is great at that. But anyway, I sort of diverged there into a rabbit hole about Amazon. But No, well, let me share a story with you because I think this sort of highlights some of the challenge because at the weekend, one of our clocks wasn't working. So we decided that we would take it down to the repair shop and get it repaired. And we turned up at the repair shop at five to five. So five minutes before the shop was closed. And guess what? It was closed. And I thought to myself, that's ironic, isn't it? It's a clock shop and they've shut five <laughs> minutes early. <laughs> so we knocked and on the door. Maybe the clock was fast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and here's the irony, because you start looking at this stuff, don't you? All the clocks said five to five, right? So we knocked on the door. This woman came and opened the door, and she said, you know what the time is? And we went, yeah, it's five to five. And she said, what have you been doing all day? Why have you, <laughs> why have you only come here now? And we went, well, I'm really sorry, but we've been busy. <laughs> and you did say it was open till five o'clock. And then when we walked in and she started to write the chit out and stuff like that, all the clocks suddenly went five o'clock. We went, there you go, it's time to shut now. But I walked out and I sat in the car and I thought, and people complain that the fact that the high street and main street is dying. And this is the experience that you have to deal with. It's so much easier buying something on Amazon. You know, why am I going to bother bringing it down here? And then the irony is, is the following day, we found a clock that was, I don't know, half the price of the repair. So we then started thinking, why don't bother to we even get it repaired? We just should have just bought a new one. Yeah, as you were telling me that story, Colin, I was really amazed that there are still clock repair shops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it is a little quaint. Uh, but to, uh, to be fair, Colin, what were you doing all day? Uh, <laughs> I, I know. I mean, no, it, it was, was indefensible. <laughs> I was working and I did feel guilty, but the trouble is maybe it's just being British. I apologized. You know, I'm really sorry <laughs> I didn't get down here earlier. You know, I understand that it's my fault and I understand that you actually want to leave five minutes before you say you want to leave. I should realize that in the future. So, but yeah, no, I mean, clearly the whole area of friction is massive. And why do you think so many organizations struggle with this then, Roger? Because, it, you know, every organization I go into, they say, they want to be easy to do business with, and invariably, they're not. Well, I think there's probably two main reasons. One is often they simply don't observe customer behavior, either by actually observing customers or by using the digital tools that are available for online interactions. I mean, today, you can track behavior on the web so well. You can see what people are doing on your website, how long they're on a page, whether they have to search five times or one time to find what they're looking for. You can see if they click on stuff that they're not supposed to be clicking on, which means you've got visually distracting elements in there that are confusing the customers. But you know, often, uh, companies just assume that, well, hey, it's pretty obvious to me, so it should 
pretty obvious to the customer. And then the other thing is, I'm sure you've seen this as well, Colin, that the number of companies that say that they are customer-centric is enormous. Like probably 90% of the companies say that uh, they put the customer first. But if you ask the customers about that, uh, you get a much lower number, maybe 20% or something feel that way. And the reason is because it's there in what they say. It's in their mission statement. But when push comes to shove, it's the company's interest to come first. So, you know, if it uh, means this quarter's numbers or taking care of customers, uh, this quarter's numbers win. Sure. And that's where I think Amazon are different. I mean, Bezos has always said that he wants Amazon to be one of the most customer-centric companies out there, hasn't he? Yeah, and he actually delivers on the promise, unlike the rest of them, he does. And uh, I think uh, Zappos, who was acquired by Amazon, uh, was certainly that way too. And that overlap in philosophies, I believe, is one reason why that merger happened when it did. So let me challenge some of the thinking, if I may, because I was thinking about this before we got on the podcast. One of the problems with if everybody's experience was easy and was frictionless, then the challenge is how do you stand out in the crowd? So, you know, I've heard, well, there are stats that will tell you that if you want to increase customer loyalty, a great time to increase customer loyalty is when something goes wrong. Because if something goes wrong, then it gives you the opportunity to recover. And therefore, it's in that recovery that you can actually build a loyal customer. I don't know of an organization that's done this, but I mean, it does make you then think, well, maybe we should actually get things to go wrong more often so we can build loyal customers. But most of us manage to do it uh, even without trying. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. But I guess if everybody was, if everybody had a frictionless, easy experience, isn't the problem then that, and this goes back to sort of the core of customer experience, which is that their experience is commoditized? Uh, well, you know, first of all, I would love to live in that world, Colin. <laughs> I mean, that, that would be uh, friction nirvana, I think. And I don't think that we're going to be there anytime soon. But, you know, there are lots of ways to differentiate a company. I think that we have different products. Not everybody has the exact same products. Uh, uh, the product characteristics are different. The branding can be very different. Branding is often an emotional thing. But, yeah. uh, you know, I think that the customer experience part, at least the friction and customer experience, just gets in the way of everything else. So what happens is companies focus on these other things like, hey, uh, you know, we're doing this great ad campaign that's positioning us in a certain way uh, versus the competition, or it's doing this great emotional appeal, but they don't do the nuts and bolts of getting their customer experience right. And it ends up being their, whatever campaign they're running ends up being much less effective. So I think that companies in Silicon Valley, for example, they have sort of got this uh, frictionless thing for longer than most. They're, you know, people were students of BJ Fogg uh, for years uh, with his uh, Fogg behavior model that talked about there being three factors if you want to get people to do something, uh, motivation, a trigger, now he calls it a prompt, and ability. And ability is basically lack of difficulty. And so if you look at these really successful apps like WhatsApp or Instagram that ended up dominating their space in spite of the fact that there were definitely other messaging apps out there, dozens of other messaging apps. There were dozens of other photo sharing apps. 
they used, among other things, techniques that made it very easy for customers to adopt their product and keep using it. And my friend Nir Ayal wrote a book called Hooked. And in there, he sort of decodes a loop that involves not just reducing the friction for each action, but also using a reward system to sort of cycle people back into it and investment. So the more you use a product, the more you're invested in it. Uh, you know, if, if somebody came along with a Twitter competitor, and if you've got 20,000 Twitter followers now, are you going to be likely to say, oh, I think I'll jump over to that other one? No, you're not because you've got so much invested, but they get it better than most. Uh, but there's still certainly a lot of differentiation between the products and the brands. Sure. And Ryan and I did a podcast a few weeks ago about where customer experience and branding come together. And absolutely, I'd agree with you that you can be absolutely different on the brand and that will drive a lot of people to you. That then goes into the consistency and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, by eliminating obstacles to doing business, that's just something that everybody should be doing and working on differentiating themselves in different ways as opposed to, gee, uh, my customer experience sucks less than the other guys. I think the interesting part for me is that if you look at, I mean, you talk about Silicon Valley and stuff like that, the challenge is more for the legacy companies and legacy systems so the great thing about whatsapp facebook other etc is that they had a, effectively a blank sheet of paper that they could work for if you're now talking about being i don't know macy's or well, I, I'll, I'll throw United Airlines as a good example because uh, their user experience on United.com and to maybe a little bit lesser extent in their app is consistently bad in so many ways. Uh, uh, and sure. uh, I assume that they actually do have some really smart user experience people on board, but they are working with some unholy combination of millions of lines of uh, legacy code uh, to work around yeah. and uh, also probably a legal department or a risk management department that has a little bit too much power. Yeah. And that combination ends up with really an awful experience. Hi, this is Colin Shaw. If you'd like to find out more about how you can measure your customers' authentic emotions in the digital and the physical world, then please go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. So how would you go about creating a frictionless experience or how the name of our podcast, as you're more than aware, is the intuitive customer. So how do you make it intuitive? How do you make it so the customer doesn't even have to think about it? Well, the best way is to test, 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 to observe customers uh, using your product, your interface, uh, your website, your app. You know, intuitive is a good thing, but all too often, experienced designers rely on their intuition. And uh, that often leads them in the wrong direction because uh, their intuition is different than their customers. I mean, occasionally you get a Steve Jobs who seems to have almost a magical ability to know what customers will respond to, even if they can't explain it. But face it, most of the folks out there are not Steve Jobs. And uh, the way to tell is not even by asking customers, because often they can't articulate exactly what they're looking for, but just by observing what they do. 
I've had so many experiences where I'm using a website and I'm scratching my head. I'm not an inexperienced digital person. And I cannot figure out what they expect me to do next. You know, so I'm hunting around for what do I click on? Uh, uh, you know, where's the next step here? Uh, and it's, you know, some little hidden hamburger menu up in the corner or something like that. Sure. And you, you wonder, uh, did they ever watch a new user try and use this website? Because they could have watched probably three or four users try it and would have seen immediately that, hey, this is not as obvious as we thought it was, but clearly that hasn't been done, you know? And so to me, that's number one. Number two is to develop a friction-aware culture in the company. And that's going to have multiple benefits when practically everybody in the organization, from the customer service people to the web designers to everybody else, is thinking about friction and how to reduce it. First of all, the customers will benefit because instead of the individual in the company saying, well, you know, we do it this way because we've always done it that way or because uh, somebody said we had to do it that way. If they're thinking of it from the customer's point of view, they're going to say, well, hey, do we have to do it this way? And then also the side benefit of that is that they will start looking at their own procedures internally at the time that they're wasting because, you know, sometimes the employee experience can be just as frustrating as the customer experience where they've got to uh, fill out forms or create reports every week and uh, doing things or go to meetings that accomplish nothing and they don't really need to be in, sift through dozens or hundreds of emails. There's a tremendous statistic out from Harvard Business Review article that showed that annually uh, U.S. businesses waste $3 trillion a year. That's a trillion with a T on what the authors called organizational drag. And that's just what I've been talking wow. about. It's uh, uh, rules, procedures, email meetings that aren't necessary. And when a business develops this friction awareness. Not only does their customer experience get better, but their internal experience gets better. They're more productive and their team is more engaged. Do you have any favorite examples of organizations that have gone through a culture change like that or, or organizations that ground up? Uh, I can throw out a few, perhaps not sort of top to bottom on both ends, but uh, looking at uh, perhaps one of the greatest CEOs of all time, Jack Welch uh, and GE, um, when he took over the company, they were in a fairly strong position, but they were bloated. They had a lot of products that were not leaders. He did a lot of things. Uh, he pared down their product line, simplified it. He cut a lot of staff. He cut out layers and layers of management that were slowing down communication. And then after delayering vertically, uh, he sort of blew up the walls horizontally so that anybody could talk to anybody. And one example that I uh, really love from his many examples is when they had a meeting with manufacturing people at one of their plants. And these were uh, mostly shop floor workers who were union guys who were used to an, an adversarial relationship with management. The management just wanted them to work harder and didn't really pay attention to them. And they asked, well, how can we make your life easier? And so that, that was initially uh, kind of a stunner, I think, for some of these uh, workers. <laughs> Nobody from management ever asked about making it easier. It's like, how can we get more work out of you? And one fellow spoke up. Uh, he was a machine operator uh, and was constantly handling sharp metal parts and used work gloves. And about once a week or so, he'd wear out a pair of gloves. And to get a new pair, you'd have to uh, leave his workstation, leave his building, go to another building where the tool crib was, fill out a requisition form for a pair of gloves, then find a supervisor to approve it, carry that back to the crib, get uh, the gloves and then go back finally to his workstation and resume work. And that could take an hour or two, depending on how busy things were and if he could find a supervisor right away. And the solution was so simple, 
put in a box of gloves by the guy's workstation. And immediately you're saving hours and hours per month of just lost time and productivity. Plus you're exhibiting trust in the worker because the reason they had implemented that was because somebody thought, well, gee, if we just put gloves out there, people are going to steal them. Even though, first of all, people did not end up stealing the gloves. And even so, if they lost a pair of gloves once in a while, compare that to the uh, value of all that lost productivity. And so it's just simple things like that that can do. And other companies nibble at the edges. I think it was a Ferrari of all companies decided to dramatically limit the way people could send emails. Another company had meeting-free Mondays. And sometimes just little steps can cut down on uh, some of this waste. And, you know, is it transformative? Not entirely all the time, but enough little steps and people start thinking about it and they see more and more things that can be done to improve the situation. It strikes me that the examples you give are kind of about hidden costs. So some of this friction is caused by emphasizing costs that are more transparent, like shrinkage from people stealing potentially, and imposing instead hidden costs that I can hide from, from myself right. as a well, manager. That's, that's an excellent point. Somebody further down. And uh, you know, the, uh, one of my original subtitles for the book was The Invisible Force, uh, with a few words after yeah. that. And, and to me, that's what's significant about friction. You don't see it most of the time. In fact, you know, before Uber came along, everybody took taxis. We didn't really think too much about it. You know, it was like, yeah, sometimes they were a pain, but it was sort of the best we had. And we would not have considered it necessarily a high friction experience unless it was like perhaps a uh, rainy afternoon in Manhattan or something. But in fact, once Uber came along, suddenly we realized that the whole process of exiting a cab where you've got either fumble for money and tips and so on or process a credit card in some bulky little machine that isn't working that well, uh, you know, you could just eliminate all that. So people don't always see it right away. And really, my objective with the book is to help people start seeing it before somebody comes along and disrupts them by showing it to them. So it's normally at this point, Roger, we ask a basic question, which is, what should people do? If you've been listening to this podcast and you think to yourself, yeah, definitely need to, other than go and buy your book, which I would recommend that people do. But, you know, other than going buy your book, what would you say people should take away and start doing? Now, maybe where to start with all of right. this. Right. You know, I think... Um, just developing that friction awareness, looking at things from a, you know, sort of stepping to uh, one side a little bit and looking at things from a perspective of an, of an outsider. Or if you're talking about friction in the customer process, looking at it not from what you believe the customer to be, uh, but to actually watch what they're doing. And you will start seeing these things and really questioning everything. I like using the example of the taxis. Like nobody really questioned the fact they had to pay when you got out of a taxi because, hey, you know, that's how it worked. You have to pay them. It didn't occur to somebody that there was a faster, easier way of doing that where the customer could just get out and go. So, you know, it took somebody who had that sort of tangential view, who wasn't an insider, wasn't necessarily familiar with the process or assume that it had to be that way to do that. You know, so often across all industries, innovation comes from outside because somebody doesn't know how things have to be. And the people inside could see that uh, themselves if they tried. 
you know, I just had um, an interesting example from, I had a chance to visit Carnival's Innovation Center in Miami, Carnival Cruise Lines Innovation Center, All right, uh, yeah, which yeah. is um, really a spectacular place where they've mocked up the entire cruise experience. So there's a little thing where uh, it's like a bar or a restaurant or even the boarding process where you sort of go down the gangway and you have to go, you know, get your uh, photo taken on many lines and so on. Yeah, they they mocked all this stuff up and uh, they're working on something uh, that's like an improvement on Disney's magic band. John Padgett there is their VP of innovation and was the guy who led the magic band team at Disney. But their focus is on two things, friction and personalization. Uh, And a lot of it is using uh, advanced technology to do that. And friction, they're eliminating. Personalization, they are adding and trying to deliver personalization at a large scale. But one of the things that I found is that people often think things have to be done a certain way because it's a rule. I'm not sure if you've been on a cruise before, but one thing that always drove me crazy was before you board a ship, you stand in this line to check in and you've got to fill out a form on the spot, a paper form that asks you, have you had any illnesses in the last 24 hours, a diary and such, because obviously they don't want people getting on the ship. Now, if you say yes, you are not going to board the ship. So you can imagine the number of passengers who would say yes, it would be extremely limited, even if they weren't feeling all that well, (laughs) they're going to say, hey, I'm great. But everybody had to fill out the form. Thousands and thousands and thousands of passengers every day had to do this on the spot. You couldn't pre-do it. You couldn't do it online. So I asked John Padgett, well, so, well, what about that part of the process? And figure out a way to automate that? And he said, yeah, we eliminated it. Uh, it turned out it wasn't really a legal requirement. Just uh, everybody thought it had to be done. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I think that uh, those yeah. kinds of uh, little things exist in every industry. Sure. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, and the same applies in measurement, that things get added, but they rarely get taken away. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, measures get added, but rarely do people go, do we actually need to have all these other measures that we've got or these other processes that we've got? Anything from you, Ryan, on what people should do? Another way maybe of phrasing some of the this wisdom that we've had that I think that there's limits to best practices approach. I mean, I hear that a lot from people. Well, what are the best practices in this industry? You know, what are the leaders doing? You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think a lot of the examples that Roger has given us, it's, it's these insights from the outside. It's looking at things from the customer's perspective. The thing that everyone may accept as a given may in fact not be that great. Are there other ways of doing it when we focus on problems instead of focusing on chasing whatever the crowd is doing? Yeah, and I totally agree. And for me, it's definitely the watching customers. And certainly, and again, we've had some podcasts on this uh, recently uh, where we've been starting to look at the whole area of facial recognition and facial expression. You know, being able to watch a customer, video a customer using your website, then being able to see the micro expressions that they have that portray how they're feeling gives you so much more insight than somebody sitting down and going, I think this is a good idea and therefore we should do it. So I would definitely echo that. So thanks very much, Roger, for coming on today. If people want to get a hold of you, how would they best get a hold of you? Probably the best jumping off point would be rogerdooley.com. There I link to my various blogs at Neuromarketing and Forbes, and also my social media stuff is all there. As far as social media, the, probably the best way to find me is on Twitter, where I am at Roger Dooley. Wonderful. 
Good. And if I was you, I would definitely go out and buy the book and have a read and then interact with Roger over social media. I'm sure you'll find it really useful. So thanks very much, Roger, for coming on today. And um, Well, yeah, thank, uh, thank you guys for having me on board. It was really nice. Good. Okay. We'll talk to everybody next week. Thanks very much for dialing in. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.